Chapter 2 of The End of the Tether by Joseph Conrad This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Chapter 2 The End of the Tether His age sat lightly enough on him, and of his ruin he was not ashamed. He had not been alone to believe in the stability of the banking corporation. Men whose judgment in matters of finance was as expert as his seamanship had commended the prudence of his investments and had themselves lost much money in the great failure. The only difference between him and them was that he had lost his all. And yet, not his all, there had remained to him from his lost fortune a very pretty little bark, fair maid, which he had bought to occupy his leisure of a retired sailor, to play with, as he expressed it himself. He had formally declared himself tired of the sea the year preceding his daughter's marriage. But after the young couple had gone to settle in Melbourne, he found out that he could not make himself happy on shore. He was too much of a merchant sea captain for mere yachting to satisfy him. He wanted the illusion of affairs, and his acquisition of the fair maid preserved the continuity of his life. He introduced her to his acquaintances in various ports as my last command. When he grew too old to be trusted with a ship, he would lay her up and go ashore to be buried, leaving directions in his will to have the bark towed out and scuttled decently in deep water on the day of the funeral. His daughter would not grudge him the satisfaction of knowing that no stranger would handle his last command after him. With the fortune he was able to leave her, the value of a five-hundred-ton bark was neither here nor there. All this would be said with a jocular twinkle in his eye. The vigorous old man had too much vitality for the sentimentalism of regret, and a little wistfully withal, because he was at home in life, taking a genuine pleasure in its feelings and its possessions, in the dignity of his reputation and his wealth, in his love for his daughter, and in his satisfaction with the ship, the plaything of his lonely leisure. He had the cabin arranged in accordance with his simple ideal of comfort at sea. A big bookcase, he was a great reader, occupied one side of his stateroom. The portrait of his late wife, a flat, bituminous oil painting representing the profile and one long black ringlet of a young woman, faced his bed place. Three chronometers ticked him to sleep and greeted him on waking with the tiny competition of their beats. He rose at five every day. The officer of the morning watch, drinking his early cup of coffee aft by the wheel, would hear through the wide orifice of the copper ventilators all the splashings, blowings and splutterings of his captain's toilet. These noises would be followed by a sustained deep murmur of the Lord's Prayer, recited in a loud, earnest voice. Five minutes afterwards, the head and shoulders of Captain Wally emerged out of the companion hatchway. Invariably, he paused for a while on the stairs, looking all round at the horizon, upwards at the trim of the sails, inhaling deep draughts of the fresh air. Only then he would step out on the poop, acknowledging the hand raised to the peak of the cap with a majestic and benign good morning to you. He walked the deck till eight, scrupulously. Sometimes, not above twice a year, he had to use a thick cudgel-like stick on account of a stiffness in the hip, a slight touch of rheumatism, he supposed. Otherwise, he knew nothing of the ills of the flesh. At the ringing of the breakfast bell, he went below to feed his canaries, wind up the chronometers, and take the head of the table. 
From there he had before his eyes the big carbon photograph of his daughter, her husband, and two fat-legged babies, his grandchildren, set in black frames into the maplewood bulkheads of the cuddy. After breakfast he dusted the glass over these portraits himself with a cloth, and brushed the oil painting of his wife with a plumate kept suspended from a small brass hook by the side of the heavy gold frame. Then, with the door of his stateroom shut, he would sit down on the couch under the portrait to read a chapter out of a thick pocket Bible. Her Bible. But on some days he only sat there for half an hour with his finger between the leaves and the closed book resting on his knees. Perhaps he had remembered suddenly how fond of boat sailing she used to be. She had been a real shipmate, and a true woman too. It was like an article of faith with him that there never had been and never could be a brighter, cheerier home anywhere afloat or ashore than his home under the poop deck of the Condor, with the big main cabin all white and gold, garlanded as if for a perpetual festival with an unfading wreath. She had decorated the centre of every panel with a cluster of home flowers. It took her a twelvemonth to go round the cuddy with this labour of love. To him it had remained a marvel of painting, the highest achievement of taste and skill. And as to old Swinburne, his mate, every time he came down to his meals he stood transfixed with admiration before the progress of the work. You could almost smell these roses, he declared, sniffing the faint flavour of turpentine which at that time pervaded the saloon, and, as he confessed afterwards, made him somewhat less hearty than usual in tackling his food. But there was nothing of the sort to interfere with his enjoyment of her singing. Mrs. Wally is a regular out-and-out nightingale, sir, he would pronounce with a judicial air after listening profoundly over the skylight to the very end of the piece. In fine weather, in the second dog watch, the two men could hear her trills and roulades going on to the accompaniment of the piano in the cabin. On the very day they got engaged, he had written to London for the instrument, but they had been married for over a year before it reached them, coming out round the Cape. The big case made part of the first direct general cargo landed in Hong Kong Harbour, an event that to the men who walked the busy quays of today seemed as hazily remote as the dark ages of history. But Captain Wally could in half an hour of solitude live again all his life with its romance, its ideal and its sorrow. He had to close her eyes himself. She went away from under the ensign like a sailor's wife, a sailor herself at heart. He had read the service over her, out of her own prayer book, without a break in his voice. When he raised his eyes he could see old Swinburne facing him with his cap pressed to his breast and his rugged, weather-beaten, impassive face streaming with drops of water like a lump of chipped red granite in a shower. It was all very well for that old sea-dog to cry. He had to read on to the end, but after the splash he did not remember much of what happened for the next few days. An elderly sailor of the crew, deft at needlework, put together a mourning frock for the child out of one of her black skirts. He was not likely to forget, but you cannot dam up life like a sluggish stream. It will break out and flow over a man's troubles. It will close upon a sorrow like the sea upon a dead body, no matter how much love has gone to the bottom. And the world is not bad. People had been very kind to him, especially Mrs. Gardner, the wife of the senior partner in Gardner, Patterson and Company, the owners of the Condor. 
It was she who volunteered to look after the little one, and in due course took her to England, something of a journey in those days even by the overland mail route, with her own girls to finish her education. It was ten years before he saw her again. As a little child, she had never been frightened of bad weather. She would beg to be taken up on deck in the bosom of his oilskin coat to watch the big seas hurling themselves upon the condor. The swirl and crash of the waves seemed to fill her small soul with a breathless delight. A good boy spoiled, he used to say of her in joke. He had named her Ivy because of the sound of the word and obscurely fascinated by a vague association of ideas. She had twined herself tightly round his heart, and he intended her to cling close to her father as to a tower of strength, forgetting while she was little that in the nature of things she would probably elect to cling to someone else. But he loved life well enough for even that event to give him a certain satisfaction, apart from his more intimate feeling of loss. After he had purchased the fair maid to occupy his loneliness, he hastened to accept a rather unprofitable freight to Australia simply for the opportunity of seeing his daughter in her own home. What made him dissatisfied there was not to see that she clung now to somebody else, but that the prop she had selected seemed on closer examination a rather poor stick, even in the matter of health. He disliked his son-in-law's studied civility, perhaps more than his method of handling the sum of money he had given Ivy at her marriage. But of his apprehensions he said nothing. Only on the day of his departure, with the hall door open already, holding her hands and looking steadily into her eyes, he had said, You know, my dear, all I have is for you and the chicks. Mind you write to me openly. She had answered him by an almost imperceptible movement of her head. She resembled her mother in the colour of her eyes and in character, and also in this that she understood him without many words. Sure enough, she had to write, and some of these letters made Captain Wiley lift his white eyebrows. For the rest, he considered he was reaping the true reward of his life by being thus able to produce on demand whatever was needed. He had not enjoyed himself so much, in a way, since his wife had died. Characteristically enough, his son-in-law's punctuality in failure caused him at a distance to feel a sort of kindness towards the man. The fellow was so perpetually being jammed on a lee shore that to charge it all to his reckless navigation would be manifestly unfair. No, no, he knew well what that meant. It was bad luck. His own had been simply marvellous, but he had seen in his life too many good men, seamen and others, go under with the sheer weight of bad luck not to recognise the fatal signs. For all that, he was cogitating on the best way of tying up very strictly every penny he had to leave when, with a preliminary rumble of rumours, whose first sound reached him in Shanghai as it happened, the shock of the big failure came. And after passing through the phases of stupor, of incredulity, of indignation, he had to accept the fact that he had nothing to speak of to leave. Upon that, as if he had only waited for this catastrophe, the unlucky man, away there in Melbourne, gave up his unprofitable game and sat down, in an invalid's bath chair at that too. He will never walk again, wrote the wife. For the first time in his life, Captain Wally was a bit staggered. The fair maid had to go to work in bitter earnest now. 
It was no longer a matter of preserving alive the memory of Daredevil Harry Wally in the eastern seas or of keeping an old man in pocket money and clothes with perhaps a bill for a few hundred first-class cigars thrown in at the end of the year. He would have to buckle to and keep her going hard on a scant allowance of guilt for the gingerbread scrolls at her stem and stern. This necessity opened his eyes to the fundamental changes of the world. Of his past only the familiar names remained here and there, but the things and the men as he had known them were gone. The name of Gardner, Patterson and Company was still displayed on the walls of warehouses by the waterside, on the brass plates and window panes in the business quarters of more than one eastern port, but there was no longer a Gardner or a Patterson in the firm. There was no longer for Captain Welly an armchair and a welcome in the private office with a bit of business ready to be put in the way of an old friend for the sake of bygone services. The husbands of the Gardner girls sat behind the desks in that room where, long after he had left the employ, he had kept his right of entrance in the old man's time. Their ships now had yellow funnels with black tops and a timetable of appointed routes like a confounded service of tramways. The winds of December and June were all one to them. Their captains, excellent young men, he doubted not, were, to be sure, familiar with Wally Island because of late years the government had established a white fixed light on the north end with a red danger sector over the Condor Reef, but most of them would have been extremely surprised to hear that a flesh-and-blood Wally still existed, an old man going about the world trying to pick up a cargo here and there for his little bark. And everywhere... It was the same. Departed the men who would have nodded appreciatively at the mention of his name and would have thought themselves bound in honour to do something for daredevil Harry Wally. Departed the opportunities which he would have known how to seize and gone with them the white-winged flock of clippers that lived in the boisterous, uncertain life of the winds, skimming big fortunes out of the foam of the sea. In a world that pared down the profits to an irreducible minimum, in a world that was able to count its disengaged tonnage twice over every day and in which lean charters were snapped up by cable three months in advance, there were no chances of fortune for an individual wandering haphazard with a little bark, hardly indeed, any room to exist. He found it more difficult from year to year. He suffered greatly from the smallness of remittances he was able to send his daughter. Meantime, he had given up good cigars, and even in the matter of inferior cheroots, limited himself to six a day. He never told her of his difficulties, and she never enlarged upon her struggle to live. Their confidence in each other needed no explanations, and their perfect understanding endured without protestations of gratitude or regret. He would have been shocked if she had taken it into her head to thank him in so many words, but he found it perfectly natural that she should tell him she needed two hundred pounds. He had come in with a fair maid in ballast to look for a freight in the Cephala's port of registry, and her letter met him there. Its tenor was that it was no use mincing matters. Her only resource was in opening a boarding-house, for which the prospects, she judged, were good. Good enough, at any rate, to make her tell him frankly that with two hundred pounds she could make a start. He had torn the envelope open hastily on deck, where it was handed to him by the ship's chandler's runner, who had brought his mail at the moment of anchoring. For the second time in his life he was appalled. 
and remained stock still at the cabin door with the paper trembling between his fingers. Open a boarding house, two hundred pounds for a start, the only resource, and he did not know where to lay his hands on two hundred pence. All that night Captain Wally walked the poop of his anchored ship as though he had been about to close with the land in thick weather and uncertain of his position after a run of many grey days without a sight of sun, moon or stars. The black night twinkled with the guiding lights of seamen and the steady straight lines of lights on shore, and all round the fair maid the riding lights of ships cast trembling trails upon the water of the roadstead. Captain Wally saw not a gleam anywhere till the dawn broke, and he found out that his clothing was soaked through with a heavy dew. His ship was awake. He stopped short, stroked his wet beard, and descended the poop ladder backwards with tired feet. At the sight of him, the chief officer, lounging about sleepily on the quarter-deck, remained open-mouthed in the middle of a great early-morning yawn. "'Good morning to you,' pronounced Captain Wally solemnly, passing into the cabin. But he checked himself in the doorway and without looking back. "'By the by,' he said, "'there should be an empty wooden case put away in the lazarette. "'It has not been broken up, has it?' The mate shut his mouth and then asked as if dazed, "'What empty case, sir?' "'A big flat packing case belonging to that painting in my room.' Let it be taken up on deck and tell the carpenter to look it over. I may want to use it before long. The chief officer did not stir a limb till he had heard the door of the captain's stateroom slam within the cuddy. Then he beckoned aft the second mate with his forefinger to tell him that there was something in the wind. When the bell rang, Captain Wally's authoritative voice boomed out through a closed door. Sit down and don't wait for me and his impressed officers took their places, exchanging looks and whispers across the table. What? No breakfast? And after apparently knocking about all night on deck, too, clearly there was something in the wind. In the skylight above their heads, bowed earnestly over the plates, three wire cages rocked and rattled to the restless jumping of the hungry canaries, and they could detect the sounds of their old man's deliberate movements within his stateroom. Captain Wally was methodically winding up the chronometers, dusting the portrait of his late wife, getting a clean white shirt out of the drawers, making himself ready in his punctilious, unhurried manner to go ashore. He could not have swallowed a single mouthful of food that morning. He had made up his mind to sell the fair maid. End of chapter 2